And now we have um, a guest this morning speaking. It is uh, one of our staff ministers, and this is someone who I think really lives and breathes science of mind, someone that I know and love. Please help me welcome Catherine McLeod. Thank you, Sandra. Well, it's warmed up a little bit, don't you think? Wasn't quite as grueling to get out of bed this morning. So as we begin our service this morning, I invite you just to really be present. To be present to the feel of the chair, your feet on the floor perhaps, to your breath. Maybe close your eyes gently and really be here now. And so I feel my heart beating and I feel the light in the room. I feel the warmth of your energy and your love and your presence. And I know that there is one power beating our hearts, one power in every cell of our being. It is the livingness of spirit expressing itself uniquely and perfectly as each one of us and as we bring our energy and our love and our conscious awareness together, we are a power for good in the universe. And I know that this power is used for the goodness, the wholeness, and the beauty of creativity and creation. And so in this season of light and love, I plant the seed of that awareness knowing that it blooms all this month and into the next year. Know that with me as together we say. And so it is. I forgot to ask Reverend Patrick what he was doing when he asked me if I would give the talk, so I can't tell you where he is. I hope he's having fun, and I hope he's in some place that's really warm. I have some friends that live in southern Alberta, they're the Mitchell family, and for generations, they have had this little squabble with what the border, their border of their land is kind of right on the border of Montana and Alberta, and it's never been quite clear which country they were, they belong to. And the other day, last week, they got some news from the U.S. government saying that the people of Montana have agreed that the land that where their farm is located is actually really part of the United States and that they have the right to approve that or to not approve that agreement. And so the son lives with his mom and his children live with him too. And he said to his mom, what do you think? His mom said, jump at it. Call them right now and tell them we accept. I don't think I could stand another one of those cold Canadian winters. <laughs> it's been cold, hasn't it? The wind's been blowing. It On Thursday night, Norm had tickets, free tickets, to the uh, preview viewing of the Long Walk to Freedom Mandela at the Northwood Mall. And about an hour before we were to leave, we learned of his passing, that Nelson Mandela, at the age of 95, had made his transition. And so it felt like a serendipitous gift to be able to go and sit there in the theater and watch this beautiful movie of his magnificent life. The theater did really well. They had a young woman uh, with a microphone that stood at the front, and she said that you may not be aware that Nelson Mandela has died today, just a few hours ago. And 
Let's take a moment of silence to give our blessing to his family. The whole movie just felt enchanting because uh, we sat there with, Norm sits on the board of the John Humphrey Society for Peace and Human Rights too, and so that group was sitting in front of us. And you know, they're so, in, they're so rooted in social justice and peace and human rights. And so it felt like that consciousness sat there with us too as we watched this powerful movie of Nelson Mandela's life. Really a wonderful human being. The title of my talk is The Holy One, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about Nelson Mandela, but this, speaking of serendipity, there was another little serendipitous event that happened a couple of weeks ago, well, maybe a week ago. This book was, has, was being passed around an office. It's called The Holy Man, and it was given to Norm to, uh, to, to read and pass on. And so when it came in the house, and my talk is The Holy One, I just thought, oh, there's no coincidence. I've got to use something out of this book, and so I will. You may know it, it's not real new, but it is a real delight, and so if you haven't read it, I really do recommend it. There was a holy man who lived in a hermitage on a mountain. Although it was solitary, it was not strictly a hermitage, because the monks lived there with him. Even before the world began to seek him out, he was rarely alone. But when the word got out about him, people came to see him during the summer months when the hermitage was accessible. At first a few people, and then more and more until there was a long line climbing the mountain. It was a steep path. They had to walk single file, tens, hundreds, and then thousands, some of whom had never made it to his door before the winter set in and they had to come again the next year. There was no inns along the pilgrimage, so they had to be prepared to camp. It wasn't a hardship in the warm and dry weather of the summer. The views were outstanding, and at night the stars dazzled. But it took strength to get there because they had to carry all their, their belongings. So anyone frail or unwell could not come to see the holy man who, in any case, he wasn't a healer. The line moved slowly. It moved continuously during the first hours of the day when he welcomed people. In fact, those who were near the head of the line could observe and were amazed at how many people he managed to see, even though they were admitted one at a time. Sometimes the, pilgrimage had to, the pilgrims had to step aside for one of the monks who lived with the holy man, as he or she stepped rapidly and lightly up the path carrying supplies from the, miles, from the town that was 10 miles below. These men and women were easily distinguished by their wheat-colored robes. Those in the line never saw the departing pilgrims, however, because they went out the back door and down another path to the bottom of the mountain, because the upward path, which was called the Hermitage Trail, was too narrow for two-way traffic. The hermitage had no decoration, no star, no cross, and no Buddha in the garden. When the door opened, the next pilgrim in line, waiting beyond the gate, would be summoned forth by a man in a wheat-colored robe, a small, nondescript-looking person. Yes, he would ask the pilgrim when he reached the threshold. I've come to see the holy man. Follow me, please. He or she would follow the small man through the house, along the hallway with doorways open to various rooms into which the pilgrim could peek hastily, but the monk ahead was moving so very quickly through the house that the pilgrim couldn't linger but literally had to run after him. In no time at all, they'd passed the entire first floor of the house and were at the back door, similar to the one that the pilgrim had entered. It was the back door. The monk opened it wide and said goodbye. But I've come to see the holy man, the visitor said plaintively. 
You have seen me, he said gently. The next thing the pilgrim knew, he would be outside the door, and the door solidly closed behind him. That's why the line moves so rapidly and how the holy man got to see so many people or so many people got to see him. The trip through the house was 20 seconds. Another, add another 20 for greetings and partings. Another 20 for returning to the front door and what you have is a person a minute. Most times the holy man would ask, if you look at everyone you meet as a holy person, you will be happy. That added seven seconds. Rushing back and forth through the house in this way was a lot of footwork for the holy man who was 72 years old. So periodically he took a five minute break. Rarely, but sometimes, these were happy times for him, he sat down and talked to a pilgrim. What did the pilgrims feel about being given such short shrift after their long inchworm trench up the mountain while most of them were nice people, good people, wanting to be better people. So, but even so, the nicest of them felt a little wronged, a little hurt, a little cheated, a little disappointed, a little betrayed, a little angry. But it was amazing how fleeting that letdown was because as they stood outside the door, somewhat dazed, feeling any or all of the above, they began to review their visit to the holy man and understand the door had been opened to them. Many places in this world, the door is not open to us. It had been opened wide, and the one-man reception had stood there, eyes alight, a small smile, saying, yes, how can I help you? Sort of yes. When the pilgrim had not greeted him at all, had not even introduced himself, hadn't even said, hello, how are you? May I come in? But full of their own self-importance and on their mission, they had treated the door opener as a lowly servant and said, I've come to see the holy man. They would try to remember after they left what the holy man looked like and couldn't because they hadn't actually looked at him. They wouldn't even recognize him if the same man opened the door for them next year. But as they went down the mountain, their hearts swelled and said, I have seen the holy man. And as they thought about it, his face did begin to form in their mind's eye, kind of like a photograph developing. Because even though he hadn't looked at the man, somehow he now knew what he looked like. In the years to come, sometimes the holy man's face would flash upon his inward eye, and he would feel a catch in his throat, a prickly rush of tears to the eye at the sight of the beloved visage. As the years went by, he felt more and more moved by his visit to the holy man, which had informed his life from that day forward. I went to see John of God in Brazil, and this was not that much different. We formed a very long line. We waited for hours and hours and hours. We stood in line hours. Sometimes the line moved very quickly, and sometimes it didn't move at all for hours. When I got to see John of God, I was lucky because the guide had been a bit of a coach and she said you won't have very long she asked us in advance what we wanted to say she was our interpreter but she said you may be tempted to look around the room and when your very moment comes where you're right in front of God I will be talking you might look at me and miss your chance to actually look directly at John of God and have him say something to you and so I try it, it was very distracting because 
it was a new environment, it was a big deal to me, and it would have been very, very easy to just glance away at that split second. We didn't get a minute. I didn't get a minute. I got that long. Mm -hmm. And he mostly looked at the guide until she got finished, and then he made eye contact with me. And it felt deep, profound, real. I felt present. And that was it. I was out the door. The second time I went to see him, which was on the next week, I presented pictures of people I loved. And at that point, he really didn't look at me at all. He just listened and said, mm hmm, and then, you know, back door. But in spite of it, my experience is so like this because it has blessed me. I feel an energy around that Holy One. I feel somehow like I've fallen into a bigger idea of my own spirituality and how it works. And so I really do feel I have met a Holy One. In the book, it says each one of us is a holy person. And if we look at each other as a holy person, we will be happy. You must live your life in such a way that you can remember that you are a holy person. Later in the book, it says, and so if I remember it, then what do I do? And in the book, it says, then you can forget it. There are holy people in the world there really are holy people in the world. How about that little girl, Malala? Her and her family were educators and they knew very well that the Taliban was not supportive of the work they were doing. And there was so, and she was getting some attention from the media and out there in the world. And so her dad said to her, you know, I think we should quit. I really, if something happened to you, and she said, Dad, you've always told me that being a hero is in the Pashtun, that's what they are, that their ethnic group is the Pashtun, that being a hero is in the Pashtun DNA. She was fearless. She was on a bus. She was targeted directly. Her personally was targeted to be killed by the Taliban. And they shot her, and then they recognized her, and then they shot her again. The fellow shot her again point blank, and she lived. And she lived to tell about it, and she lived to present herself at the United Nations, and she was fearless fearless. She was filled with the sense of joy. You could feel it. And inspiration. You could feel it when you listen to her talk. You could even feel it in her written word. Whenever you feel great moments of love, exhilaration, or pure joy, that's the energy of source being aligned with your higher self. That girl is aligned with her higher self. She really is a holy one, and she is young. The Buddha said, step outside your belief system. When I was visiting John of God those two weeks, honestly, I, I tried to understand how it was working. I thought, well, it's such a power and such an energy. There's so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, like a thousand people meditating and being so present. There's so many people who come with significant illness and disability. And you can feel that pain and that desire and that yearning right in the room. You can feel it in the energy. 
But the interesting thing is, it's not sad. There's this wrapped up in love, energizing, transformative feeling there too. And as we meditate together, there's something that just sort of enters, I will, I'll speak myself, something just sort of entered the room in me, with me, around me, that held me focused. And when there was a commotion seeing the Holy One, we had our eyes closed, you couldn't see what that was, but you could feel the energy ripple down the line where we were standing as people were lined up all the, you know, all the way out the door and out into the yard and out to the garden and then lined up leaving too. You could feel the ripple of energy just coming, almost like we're a little caterpillar that's enlivened by the energy in the room, even though we're sitting perfectly still and meditating and being yearning and inspired for healing for these wonderful people who've come from literally all over the world to see John of God and be healed, transformed, inspired. It really was an interesting experience, but my intellect has no idea what to do with it because what we saw were things that really are not really possible. And a lot of things were not really possible, but they were possible and they were done all the time and every day. So mm, this sort of spoke to me when the Buddha said, really, we need to step outside our belief system sometimes and be in our don't know mind and that that's a very good place to be in. Robert Sharman said this, become your own guru. Once you've found your own inner power, live from inside out. Whatever you're feeling internally, we express externally. One of the other things we did in Brazil, in the evenings, we had no media, we had no, no TV, and we were not supposed to play with our techie tools. We watched DVDs of Esther Hicks. Do you know Esther Hicks? I really, I'd read a book, one book, and I had listened to a, a DVD of her, CD of her, I hadn't, I'd watched her on YouTube a little bit, and she's all about vibration. So, well, she isn't all about that, but she does say vibration, that if you get your vibration to the same vibration of what you desire, that vi because we're in a sound and vibratory universe, that vibration will, ex will attract to you a match. So that might already, they might, things that you're wanting to track might already be there, it's just that you're not looking for it, but now you're tuned in and you're vibrating at that frequency of what you desire. And so when it comes along, you notice it and you bring it into you, I think. My intellect tells me that's probably how it works. But quantum physics talks about the fact that particles are non-local and that we don't actually have to develop sequentially, that we can somehow go from here to someplace completely unknown. That it isn't always Darwin's theory, that the, the quantum particle theory is that that vibration can attract something and we can move our consciousness instantly. So maybe John of God is doing some quantum physics. That's, people sitting there uh, in the evenings also were reading books by Dr. Goswami. Do you know that Dr. Goswami? He's a, a quantum physicist and he's really quite entertaining and he's a lovely character and he's in search of his own spirituality and some of his YouTube workshops are right on, 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 uh, online. You, it's interesting to me as I'm looking for information to give a talk, it's just the best time in, my, in, this, in the world, I think, to be giving a talk because you can go online and any little curiosity you have, you can look it up. So it's a big distraction when you've only got a short timeline. So I watched Dr. Goswami, I watched the Hicks, I watched Eckhart Tolle, a couple of workshops from Eckhart Tolle, would be here now. Whew. It was wonderful information. 
And so I realized these are the holy ones. These truly are holy people right now in our world that are combining science and spirituality and empowering us to think in a new way, even though our brain doesn't quite understand it. Robert Sharma says, science and spirituality are linked and compatible. Both spring from the urge to know. The question, who am I, leads to spirituality. And the question, what is this, leads to science. Hicks says, achieve first the vibrational essence of your desire, and through the crack of least resistance, the manifestation will be delivered. You can imagine it already having happened. Pretend it. Even imagine what it will feel like, and then it will be that way. Sometimes it looks different than we expect, but it feels the same. Oprah said this world is filled with moments of grace and strange synchronicities. It's true. I never even heard of any of this until I came to this center, honestly. I was reading some self-help books, but nothing like this. I just find it exciting and fascinating that we can embrace science and we can embrace spirituality and we can embrace all this divergent thinking that's out there in the world. One of the things that I have found a little challenging about this teaching is that I was raised in a very small Welsh community of about 12 families. They, had, they were big families, lots of kids, and they were singers and they were actors. They loved to put on little skits and plays. We had a community hall as well as a real cute little community church. And we acted out the nativity scene every year. We put on a talent show every year at Christmas. Christmas was a big, big deal. And I have missed that. I love all that. And so I have been reading uh, Bishop Sponk's work. And he's got lots of analysis of how the Bible was written and what the facts actually were of that time. And he combines, it's kind of a mega study he does. That he looks at all of the scholars, Jewish scholars, all scholars, and kind of puts together, uh, you know, a nice, delivers you a nice report on kind of what the scholars actually think happened. And one of the things that I've been reading about, because I'm interested in the nativity and, the, and Jesus, and how I could somehow embrace this with my grandchildren, actually, because I have a nice nativity scene in my front room, and the four-year-old said, Grandma, what is this? And so I said, once upon a time, in a very small town, there was a very mean man, and he called people together and said he wanted to count them, and Mary and Joseph were going to have a baby, and they had to come all this way to be counted. And so I told her it, as if it's just this wonderful story, and in the, at the end, I said, the end. She said, Grandma, I love that story. <laughs> And I think I love that story too. And the reason that got written like that, according to Bishop Spunk, is because it was acted out years ago. It was made as a play and then it was written down. And the reason that the Christmas story is set up the way it is, is that they wanted acceptance for that story after Jesus died. And they linked it with all of the prophecies in the Old Testament to legitimize it. And so there's real clear references all through the Old Testament of, you know, that the Messiah is coming and what's going to happen. And so they twisted the facts a little bit even, probably a lot, to make it look like this is the right guy. But, you know, he was the right guy for many, many things. Look at the consciousness he brought the world. Look what he talked he talked about peace. He talked about the kingdom of God is within us. The kingdom of heaven is here on earth. He talked about peace in the midst of 
being killed yourself. Forgiveness, forgiveness. That song that Karen sang, a deep place of forgiveness. Think how deep your place of forgiveness would have to be in the moment on the cross when you say, forgive them. They don't really know what they're doing. That's forgiveness. But Jesus was full of that. He was full of these wonderful little pithy stories that really came to life and that people remembered. Did he really live? You know what, I think so. I think he actually lived. What did he, is he God on earth? Yeah, he's God on earth, but so are we. So is all things, everything is that spirit itself. It's taken me years and years and years to get to the place where I can hang on to my heritage, my history with the Bible and with Jesus and with some of the great stories. Put down the things that says, that does not speak for me, I do not believe that. And this is helpful and this isn't helpful. But I think at Christmas time, one of the things that we can take from this is that life is tough. There's lots of tough things. There's lots of things that happen. There's lots of things that challenge us, that really make us find our Holy One within, where we have to forgive, where we have to transform it. We've got to get a bigger idea because really it doesn't hurt the other guy. It really hurts us. It poisons us. It just poisons us if we can't forgive and move on. And Jesus has threaded that through our consciousness and has moved us forward. His whole story is one of empowerment, of transformation, of peace and of love. And I think Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela all used that consciousness and wove it into today and that we are still using that consciousness today. When we were in our early 30s, we had a young uh, black priest come and visit us. And his name was uh, Keith Philander, and he talked to us about Nelson Mandela, and he was smuggled out of South Africa because he was starting to be involved in the um, activism, really. He was trying to get rights for the black people. And so the bishops and priests from South Africa brought him to Canada, and he walked around to different communities and talked to different churches and different provinces, even across Canada, teaching us, sensitizing us about South Africa. And at that point, I was in the social justice movement, so you know, we were just eating it up. But it's sad to say we really didn't understand the significance of it. And one of the things he told us to do that is that he never wanted to come to our house and see us drinking South African wine because we were boycotting South Africa now and forever until Nelson Mandela was out of prison. So we got to know the whole story of Nelson Mandela and what was happening in South Africa. There's, I ha- I could, there's so many wonderful um, things on, and uh, I heard that Nelson Mandela's life was covered an hour this morning on CBC, so it would be a great thing to go home if you're interested in this and really get all of the details from the 1940s up until his death on Thursday. But I'll just read you a couple of nice quotes that are his. Can you imagine being able to just get up and deliver this kind of, of, a, of a statement? When he was charged with um, tra- being a traitor uh, because he was resisting the, uh, some of the things like car- they had to carry a passbook if you were a, a black person. Uh, you had to have it with you all the time. They moved people from their, their communities into uh, the townships, which were, they said often, really, they reminded them of reservations. That's really what they were. They even, Keith even told us that they got the idea from Canada of moving them all and putting them into a reservation so that they could run their armed trucks through the towns and keep the peace because there was something like 30 million blacks and there's very much, much fewer people that are white. And, of course, the whites had all the power and all the money and all the rights 
and Nelson Mandela was a lawyer working in Johannesburg and, and really hearing all of these sad stories from people's lives. And he himself married and had children. And so at 24, he started to get involved in the African National Congress. But at 34, he was really a mover and shaker in, in it. And, but he was forced to really become quite militant, I would say, because when there, when there was a big demonstration, he gave just a dynamic speech and people then were demonstrating, but the army, the white army, actually shot like something like 69 completely defenseless men, women and children just because, you know, it's frightening to have a lot of people lobbying and marching and demanding things. But anyway, they ended up, he and his group, the African National Congress, decided they would blow up government buildings. They wouldn't kill people, but they would, get, they would, make, the, they would make a statement. Anyway, he got arrested for treason, and uh, he was pre quite prepared, very prepared. Him and his friends were very prepared to be martyrs and be killed for their stand. And at his trial at the end, he said, I have fought against white domination, and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which people all live together in harmony and with equal opportunity. It's an ideal I hope to live for and to achieve, but if needs be, it's an ideal I'm prepared to die for. And he meant it. They all meant it. He went to prison for 27 years. Can you imagine going to prison for 27 years? A young, young man in his early 40s. His young wife, who is about 18 years younger than him, Winnie, they had two little girls. And she was young. She was young. And she was militant. And she was angry. And she was brave. And she went out and spoke eloquently too and rallied the troops and really started a ground war. Really, it was they became very militaristic over the course of time and over the course of years. She was put into prison for 18 months and tortured, like really tortured. And she was, when she came out of that, she, the movie does it very well, but she really said that she, her heart hardened and she was, she was no longer afraid and that she was quite prepared to do pretty much anything and everything to throw, overthrow this oppressive regime. The sad part really was that her and Nelson had a wonderful, strong relationship, but because she was out there in the trenches fighting all the time, and he was in prison working on his anger and having the time to really work on his anger and really thinking and studying and reading all kinds of literature and religious text. He said he read the Bhagavad Gita, he, he read um, Buddhist teaching, he read Christian, the, the churches around the world were lobbying in support of him. But Winnie had, was raising two children and being really traumatized all the time by the white oppressors. And in the end, she was a warrior. She was a warrior. And in the end, he was a peace activist. <laughs> he was transformed and he was uh, filled with forgiveness and reconciliation because he was detached enough to be in the most brilliant part of his own brain, recognizing strategically they could not get where they needed to go from that. They had to come from this other energy, that it was essential. Unless they wanted blood in the streets all the time and they could never win. They could never win it. And so... The two of them in the end separated once he was released from prison. And of course, you know the story where he became the first democratically elected black president. So in conclusion, I'm just going to read you a couple of quotes. During my life, I've dedicated myself to this. I've cherished the ideal of democratic and free society where all people live together in harmony 
and with equal opportunities, it's one of the most difficult things not to change society, but to change yourself. I'm changing myself by reconciling with my former adversaries, a knowledge that enables me to go to bed with an enriching feeling in my soul. Your freedom and mine cannot be separated. You have a limited time to stay on this earth. You must try to use it to transform yourself in what you desire to be. Reason over emotion. Was he angry? Yes. Did he have enough self-control to realize that that anger would be destructive to himself, his people, and his vision of the kind of society he wanted to create in South Africa? There's some wonderful videos of him after he became older in the last, maybe he was about 86 years old, he, he formed a group of elders that came together, wise people. And uh, if you click on elders, Nelson Mandela, it's just worth watching this beautiful, filled with love, so inspiring, so joyful video of them talking to each other, these wonderful elders. Each of us is a holy person. If we look on everyone as a holy person, we'll be happy. You must live your life in such a way that you remember you are a holy person. So as I conclude, I invite you to close your eyes and put your energy to your right brain, the front part of your head, the right side, your right brain, that part of your brain that's open, teachable, has the big picture. And I'll conclude with this poem by Alice Walker, a peace activist, an author, a poet, Pulitzer Prize winner. Before I leave the stage, I will sing the only song I was meant to truly sing. It is the song of I am. Yes, I am me and you. We are. I love us with every drop of our blood, every atom of our cells and all our waving particles, the undaunted flags of our being. It seems impossible that desire can sometimes transform. But this has happened. And that's how we've survived. How the whole we've carefully tended in the garden of our hearts has grown a heart to fill it. And so in this season of love and light, when we have been given so many gifts from holy people, from each other, from this lovely center of holiness, recognize that you too are the Holy One, that we are one, and that when one of us lifts our consciousness up all of our little particles are ready to jump there too. And so for this Christmas season, let's think about what's ours to transform. Let's allow that spirit of the holy to flow through us like a light, a power for good. And let us be the Holy One. Namaste.